is the, the mic sound okay? Great. And Greg, I think it has been actually eight years that we've been in a small group together, so it's been a long time. So, um, Good morning, Shiloh. My name's uh, Stephen Bordenberg. Um, this is my wife, Holly. Uh, she's going to be assisting me today um, because of hand disabilities, but um, uh, she, she kind of likes to call herself Vanna White. So, um, <laughs> so um, I, I read a book last year called Magnificent Obsession by Brian Kim. And he wrote a couple of chapters in the book uh, about the, the relationship or the friendship between uh, Mary of Bethany and Jesus. And I was inspired by those, by those chapters. And um, if you, you, you'll know Mary as uh, her family includes uh, Martha and Lazarus. And uh, they, they fell into that inner circle uh, of people that Jesus considered friends. Um, the, uh, the town of Bethany is only about uh, a couple of miles away from Jerusalem, and there were many encounters where Jesus, uh, or any moment, moments when Jesus actually traveled through Bethany to get to Jerusalem and, and stopped to visit his friends uh, in, in Bethany. Um, today's message is taken from, from multiple gospel accounts, and uh, it captures moments in their friendship. I've, tried, I've, I've titled the message, Beautiful Response, because as you'll see, um, there was a beautiful response um, captured both in words and actions. Um, sometimes it was Mary towards Jesus, and sometimes it was Jesus towards Mary. And uh, I, thought, I thought that these encounters were pure in expression and, and therefore exemplary and, uh, and worth our consideration. Uh, there was just too good, too good not to share. She's one of the few people that Jesus has multiple encounters with throughout the ministry, throughout his ministry. And and because of that, we're given an opportunity to see their friendship, their relationship develop. Uh, it was an untraditional friendship for a, a, Jewish, um, a Jewish leader uh, and a woman. Um, but wasn't it just like Jesus uh, to break down the social norms of his time? And not to be confused with uh, the Marys in the, in the Bible. Um, there's Mary, of course, who was Jesus' mother. And uh, Mary Magdalene, who sometimes uh, these two Marys do get confused, but Mary Magdalene was the woman who Jesus healed from evil spirits and was a follower of Jesus throughout his ministry. Um, I'm calling her Mary of Bethany because only really to identify with her with the town that she lived in. Now, many of you will be familiar with the first two stories, um, but in the third story, uh, the Gospel of John identifies Mary as the woman who anointed Jesus with oil uh, days before he was crucified. And this anointing of Jesus was crucial uh, because of the timing between when Jesus died on the cross and when he was buried. Because, because of the Passover celebration that was going on in Jerusalem, there wasn't enough time to properly anoint Jesus uh, before burial. And if you remember, the Roman soldiers actually hurried up the death of Jesus and the other, soldiers on the, or the other criminals hanging on the cross next to him. Jesus was taken down off the cross and quickly put in the tomb, and thus it was significant that Mary anointed him beforehand. Scene one. Um, our first encounter with Mary is with Martha at Martha's house when Jesus and his disciples uh, are traveling through and stop over for dinner. News has traveled that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, so it was quite an honor for him to be visiting at Martha's house, really anybody's house uh, for that matter. You'll remember that Martha gets frustrated with Mary because she's not helping serve the guests, and Martha complains to Jesus about her sister because Mary is found at the feet of Jesus, uh, enjoying the guests instead of serving them. Now, there are a number of traditional and, and non-traditional things going on in this situation, 
First of all, it was traditional for women to serve at a, at a dinner party. Second, when, when Mary sat at the feet of Jesus, she actually took on a tr- the traditional posture of a disciple who would sit at the feet of a rabbi or a Jewish leader. But the most non-traditional circumstance was that it was a woman. She was a woman. It was, we don't, we don't know that, we, but, but, but don't we know that Jesus always makes room for, for anyone who will listen, anyone who will respond to him, and anyone who is willing to, to follow. Despite all of this, I believe Jesus understands Martha's frustration. He would have seen it in her eyes, and he responds to her with these words. Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things. There is only one thing worth being concerned about. Mary has discovered it, and it will not be taken away from her. Now, what did Jesus mean by when he said this? There were, there were two different responses to Jesus visiting in this story. For Martha, she responds with, with what would have been natural when a large group of people are running or coming over to your house, and surely we can all relate to Martha's frenzied state of preparation. If you think about it, hers really was a reasonable response to receiving the promised Messiah of Israel in her home. For Mary, however, I guess I see her as an opportunist. She somehow grasped what, she, what was later captured in the first verses of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. She saw an opportunity to listen to the creator of the universe, eternal truths and teachings told by the greatest teacher of all time, God himself in human frame, sharing the wonders of the world in her sister's living room. So when Jesus affirmed Mary for her decision to sit and talk with him, I think what he was affirming was her teachable spirit and her understanding heart. The lesson Jesus taught in this moment was that as generous as it was, for Martha to try and serve in the way that she was, she had become so troubled and distracted in, in, this, in the service that she'd lost sight of the priority of Jesus himself. Time stood still in that living room, and for anyone who would lean in, they would have been blessed with words of eternal truth. You know, I've always admired someone who, in my opinion, lives life in the moment. I go there every so often, but I'm more likely accused of overthinking things coming up with some rationale or reason to do or not to do things. Don't get me wrong, I think there should be a balance between rational thought and simply living in the moment, because aren't we given minds, after all, with which to process things and act upon common sense? But consider this. Because God's presence is always available to us, anticipating that at any moment God can break through our thoughts, our feelings, our stubborn spirit, our our life experiences... Perhaps we need to allow ourselves to live in the moment a little more often. But I want to speak a little bit more on the topic of distractions. You've heard it said, but today's culture is in a crisis of distraction. Lack of connection and their expectation of instant gratification is a crippling reality in our present age. We're entangled in this endless web of entertainment and information constantly available at our fingertips. And yet the ache for purpose and meaning remains profoundly embedded in our hearts and minds. And our time in a relationship with, our time in a relationship with God suffers. If we're going to move forward in our relationship with him, here are some questions we need to ask ourselves on a regular basis. 
Have we grown so attached to distractions, justifiable or not, that we've lost sight of the eternal? I'm sorry, that we've lost sight of the eternal significance of the present moment. There should be a gut check in our hearts and minds when we consider the activities we're attached to, and the areas in our lives where we spend our time, because we're only given so much. We so easily allow time to read emails, reply to text messages, and check out social media, or maybe binge watch our favorite show without hesitation. Think about it. If we're going to acknowledge the eternal significance of the present moment, we should have to set aside, we would have to set aside distractions, think, think, I'm sorry, thank him for it, and be available to utilize this moment for his purposes. I'm not suggesting that it's an easy practice. If I'm honest, I certainly struggle in this area as well. But it it does beg the question, where are my priorities? And the second question, how can we live a life of true Christ-pleasing obedience without first living from a place of devoted, quiet listening? As a community of believers, I think we've lost the treasure of stillness before God. If the desire of our hearts is to live a life reflective of informed discipleship, and we want to know what the game plan is, how can we hear the voice of God unless we devote time to listening? Because this is what concerns me, and it should concern you also if you're someone who struggles with knowing your place or purpose in life like I do. I don't want to be left wondering about my place or purpose when he's trying to communicate it to me on a daily basis. If we're going to be in the presence of Jesus, let's not forget that while, yes, he is our brother and friend, he's also deserving of our reverence. He is God incarnate, the very word of God. He's been here since the beginning, so let's not lose sight of his majesty. Let's not be too proud to assume the posture of being seated at his feet, a disciple pursuing his kindness, his generosity, his blessings, and his direction for our lives. And what does being seated at his feet look like today? Well, my thought is that it's not as much about a physical posture as it is about the posture of our hearts and minds. Are you teachable? Are you willing to listen? Are you willing to change? If I could encourage you with this this thought, fight to choose the time with him in reverence and in worship and watch God vindicate your choice with his presence and power time after time. That kind of commitment will reset the, the course of your life. I can drink water. Thanks. <clears throat> Please. Um, scene two. He is for us. And I was glad to see that we were actually saying some of those words during the worship set this morning. Scene one took place during the beginning of Jesus' ministry. These next two scenes happen closer to the end. We know now Mary of Bethany is the one who has chosen the better thing. But consider the next encounter. I believe it's even more profound because it gives us a glimpse into the heart of God. And we see his response towards us. Now, don't get me wrong, I think raising Lazarus from the dead during this encounter was certainly a profound miracle. Some would say his most profound, a precursor to his own resurrection. But that's not what I'm talking about. What I believe is even more profound was the fact 
that Jesus wept along with Mary over the loss of Lazarus, displaying the depth of his humanity and his connection with our human experience. In John chapter 11, we find Jesus and the disciples outside of Bethany about a half day's journey away when word comes to him that Lazarus, his dear friend, is sick and on the verge of death. The disciples are concerned because they know, they know, not, they know how Jesus loves, I'm sorry, maybe I'll read because they know how Jesus loves his, and I'm sorry. The disciples are concerned because they know how Jesus loves Lazarus and his sisters. Jesus, let's go to Lazarus now, they say. Your dear friend is sick. Surely there's something you can do. But Jesus surprises them and says, no, it's not yet time. This will not end in death and sorrow, but will end in the glory of God, so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. And we know what happens. Lazarus does, in fact, die. And although Jesus continues his journey to Bethany, he doesn't rush. So by the time he gets there, Lazarus has been dead for four days. Now, I read that according to Jewish tradition, there, there was a belief that a person wasn't pronounced officially dead until two days had passed. Apparently, the spirit could still resuscitate someone up to two days after their physical death. So the fact that Lazarus had been dead for four days indicated that he was, by all accounts, officially dead. And that's significant to his resurrection. When Jesus sees Mary weeping, he's deeply moved. Martha returns, I'm sorry, Martha returns to Mary from another, I'm sorry, Martha returns to Mary calling her aside from the other mourners and tells her, the teacher is here and wants to see, wants to see you. And when Mary heard this, she rose quickly and went to him. And when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. And when, Mary sees, when Jesus sees Mary, sees Mary weeping, he's deeply moved. And then we see it, the shortest verse in Scripture, but perhaps one of the most profound. John chapter 11, verse 35 tells us that Jesus wept. It's amazing. Here's the eternal son, the man who knew no sin, the one who created the universe with his father, who looks upon a young woman weeping for her brother, and he weeps along with her. You might ask me, Stephen, why is it such a stretch for you to imagine Jesus weeping? Jesus showed compassion throughout the scriptures. And that's a great question. Thanks for asking. <laughs> uh, and I guess, I guess my reply is that Jesus had just prophesied that the situation would not end in death. So in my rational way of thinking, what happened in that moment? And I think the answer is this. We're given a glimpse into the miracle of Jesus as we see this perfect display of the merging of omniscient God with the incarnate man in the form of Jesus. That what happens here on earth matters to him because it matters to us. And that he's more than capable of feeling the depth of friendship. And that's what's, and, and that's what's profound about this moment. It, it, it begs the question, what's really more amazing? The man who can raise the dead or the God who can weep with his friends? In this story, we really see, God, see Jesus' ability to connect with us and our humanity. So here's the encouragement for each one of us. If you ever find yourself in a situation staring out at God and questioning whether he's understanding enough or empathetic enough, remember that Jesus desires to come alongside us in our pain and know that God is fully compassionate enough to meet with us in our suffering at times when, quite honestly, we have no other place to go.
Yet it's this message that's the most difficult to grasp on the heart level, and I think a big part of the problem is this. The world has a very convoluted understanding of God's love. But consider this one universal truth. Love cannot exist alone, directed at nothing. Love seeks to give, to grow, to thrive. Love is ever moving and extending itself to the object of its affection, whether reciprocated or not. And this is the enduring nature of God. Do you realize what this means? Everything he is and does emanates from a desire to relate and engage with you. It's the very intent of mankind created in his likeness. Try to visualize it along the terms of the parable of the prodigal son. Remember how the father was forever waiting for the son to return. This is the lens from which we should read, study, memorize, meditate. The truth from which we should live and orchestrate our lives. It's outrageous. Some call it practical atheism. But we don't fully comprehend that the God we serve is for us. We know him as a God of love, of mercy, of forgiveness. But we find it hard to believe that he is attainable, that he has time for us, or that he could possibly be interested in the details of our lives. And so in practice, we create this unnecessary divide between us and him. It's because you have to open your heart to receive him. You have to let God love you. Let him sustain you in your weakness. Let him heal you in your body, your soul, and your mind, even when it's hard to do so. 2 Corinthians 12.9 reminds us that God's power is made perfect in weakness. He's fully involved and fully committed to finish the good work he began in us. When you grasp this truth, it will invigorate your heart and give you the sustaining strength and courage you need to the, for this journey of faith. A little bit about my story. I started this downward spiral towards disabilities about eight years ago. Well, actually, it was over eight years ago. I have a pretty severe form of peripheral neuropathy, which came about as a result of cancer. I'm still living with the cancer and treating it with chemotherapy. We had a lot of hope back then that I might experience full physical recovery from the neuropathy. So with everything, everything going on medically, uh, I made the decision years ago to do what I could by staying as physically fit as possible. I committed to going to the gym three times a week, thinking in my mind, I figured if God would heal my nervous system, I would maintain my muscular system to complement his healing. However, a couple years back, I hit a mental low point and dipped into a time of depression. After years of damage, doctors gave me very little hope of neurological recovery. And so I started asking myself, what's the point? Why spend all of this time and effort? I found myself literally crying out to God. And here's the testimony. He answered my prayer within a couple of days. I was at the gym and a stranger about my age approached me. And he was covered in tattoos. He had a few crooked teeth and looked pretty rough around the edges. But he walked right up to me and without even introducing himself, he said very directly these four things to me. Number one, I've been watching you. You come here often, and you're a real inspiration. Number two, you really work out hard. A lot of people come here and just go through the motions. Number three, I don't know what it is that drives you, but you have a tremendous amount of self-motivation. And number four, and this is the one that, that really struck me, 
I know there are a lot of people who, if they were in your situation, wouldn't bother. And he said it with such honesty that I couldn't help but believe it was an answer, it wasn't, it was an answer to prayer. He said just what I needed to hear at just the right time. And you know what? I kept going. And that happened over three years ago. And of course, I'm better for it. I've even added swimming to the regiment. You never know how a word of encouragement is going to affect someone, potentially even turn their lives around. So don't be afraid. So many of us don't take the time or have the courage. And who knows, you might just be a tattoo angel for someone today. You know, I can't encourage you enough in this. He is there for you. And I I know from personal experience that there are many things that can get in the way of you believing that. Love is the enduring nature of God. He's forever extending himself to you and promises to reconcile situations in your life which get in the way of you believing in him. Psalm 46.1 reminds us that God is our refuge, a very present help in time of need. I won't promise you that he'll answer, that he'll show up in the ways that you expect, but I can assure you he's been there for me on numerous occasions, and I believe he'll be there for you as well. When life circumstances seem overwhelming and without hope, remember Jesus came alongside Mary during a painful time in her life, and that same compassion is available for you today. Jesus' experience here on earth must have solidified in his character the very essence of what it means to be human. He experienced firsthand the depth of friendship and the depth of human suffering. And let's not forget that he wept on our behalf, on behalf of all mankind in the Garden of Gethsemane. Know that God is there for you. He's aware of your pain, and by his grace, he has a way out of it for you if you're willing to allow him into your struggle. Remember that you're hardwired for fellowship with God and with others. One of the benefits of this includes sharing your burden, lightening your load, and allowing others to lead you in ways of healing. Scene three, extravagant devotion. In many ways, we see the culmination depth and the depth of of their relationship in this third passage where Mary anoints Jesus with oil. Here's the context of this next interaction. It's getting near the end of Jesus' ministry, and we're starting to see the beginnings of crisis in Jesus' life. The Pharisees and the Sadducees together are are conspiring together on how they might kill him. And immediately following this passage, Judas Iscariot begins the process of betraying Jesus. So bookmarked between these two major conspiracies, we find this beautiful story of Mary nestled in the tension. What a respite Mary provided to Jesus at this time. Mary of Bethany was likely an orphan, along with her sister Martha and brother Lazarus, since the scriptures make no reference to their parents. And where they lived was always referred to as Martha's house. It seems likely that when their parents died, they gave Martha the house as her inheritance and Mary this alabaster flask of oil worth a year's salary. And while while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, he was reclining at the table. A woman came to him with an alabaster flask of oil of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said indignantly, why was the oil wasted like that? It could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they rebuked her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing for me. 
for you always have the poor with you, and you can always do good for them whenever you want, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the world, what she has done will be told as a memorial to her. Based on conversations amongst his disciples, it appeared that Mary was perhaps the only one of all of Jesus' followers who recognized what he was going through. She'd been listening and had noticed the warnings. Somehow she was the only one who understood what, was about to, what he was about to do at Passover. She remembered what John the Baptist said about Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. She took Jesus' word seriously when he said, Thus it is written that the Messiah would die and suffer and rise from the dead. I'm sorry, would suffer and die and rise from the dead on the third day. While everyone else filtered Jesus' words and lessons through the lens of their own ambitions and expectations, Mary just listened to what he was saying and believed. God's plan for the Messiah is that he's to suffer and die. And in doing so, God incarnate is about to give up everything. And she asked herself, what can I do for him? What do I have that I could give the King of Kings and Lord of Lords who is everything? Her mind quickly flew to the alabaster flask of oil, which represented her past, her present, and her future. Her past because it was the one thing that linked her to her father and her mother. Her present as it was the most valuable thing that she had. And her future because it was likely meant to be a future dowry. But despite knowing it would mean giving up everything she had of value, she gave it away. She held nothing back for herself. Meanwhile, the disciples were chatting away, enjoying the meal and conversation, when suddenly the fragrance of this extravagant sacrifice begins to permeate the room. Everybody stops and stares, and for a moment, everybody wonders, what in the world did Mary just do? Meanwhile, the disciples are, I'm sorry, and, and the disciples' response turns to rebuke. But Jesus' response was so different. Leave her alone. She has done a beautiful thing for me. She has done what she could. She has prepared my body beforehand for burial. Based on Jesus' comment, his imminent death and burial, this next commentary is so powerful. I'm going to extrapolate here for a moment, but I don't, I don't think it's too much of a stretch. Imagine the moment, because this alabaster flask was not filled with cheap perfume. It was filled with very costly oil of nard. Its scent, thick and intensely strong, it wasn't meant to be poured out in excess. But the entire flask of oil was poured out upon Jesus, flowing down into his garments and soaking into his beard, his hair, and his skin. And this is the part that breaks my heart. A few days later, when Jesus would be whipped, bloodied, and beaten, stripped naked, and utterly alone, the fragrance of this oil would remain with him. While Jesus was walking the road to Golgotha with the cross upon his back, suffering humiliation and scorn, one thing would comfort his heart. Besides anointing him at the dinner table, the smell of perfume, Mary's privilege, was bringing comfort to the heart of Jesus as he endured the greatest suffering any man has ever known. Let that sink in for a moment. You can start to see the real value of what Mary did for him. What she did went beyond the outward act of anointing him with oil. 
Mary's actions were an expression of her complete commitment to him and extravagant devotion. And during those moments of Jesus' most distressed suffering, he's left with this lasting fragrance bestowed on him by someone who understood who he was. Think about it. What an encouragement that must have been for him to, con- to continue on to the cross, to know that someone knew, to a certain extent, the culmination of his ministry, the significant event that would change the trajectory of all mankind. So you can see why Jesus was determined to honor her. Wherever the gospel message is told, this story of anointing Jesus would be remembered. So what part of the gospel message will be told about your life? If you think about it, as a member of the family of God and someone who bears the gospel of Jesus, shouldn't there be aspects of the gospel for which you will be remembered, for which you will be memorialized? What privilege do we have in our lives to give to Jesus without reservation? Maybe you're starting to get the significance of this relationship with him. Perhaps you're starting to see that it's dynamic and what happens here on earth really matters. Are you ready to devote your life to the radical, unbalanced, extravagant pursuit of God? Follow him in obedience to his word, prayer, fasting, giving, holiness, and devoting your life to to fulfilling his commandments and the Great Commission? Then when God looks down from heaven, when he leans in to hear the cries of men, his heart will be comforted by your love in the midst of all the accusations and rage brought against him from all corners of the earth. The opportunities and privileges to impact others' lives will come, but our response to him must come first. And don't be discouraged. There will be quite, there, others will question your decision. Don't get frustrated. You should expect to be misunderstood. Like the disciples in the story, some will ask, why this waste? Jim Elliott, a missionary in South America, when confronted with this accusation of waste, responded this way. People who don't know the Lord ask, why in the world we waste our lives as missionaries? They forget that they too are expending their lives. And when the bubble has burst, they will nothing of eternal significance to show for the years they have wasted. You're going to give your life and passion to something. What is that something for you? Take some time to consider your response to this question because it will undoubtedly be life-changing. What opportunities come to mind when you think about responding to God with a big yes? The mission field? Maybe writing the big check to support the mission team somewhere in the world? Your opportunity could very well be to a calling here locally. Maybe it's helping to feed or clothe people in your community. Maybe it's starting a Bible study at your high school or, or college campus. Or perhaps it's supporting community groups in the area of racial or justice tensions. All good stuff. And in doing so, we're responding to God with a big yes. These types of commitments to the ministry of God require much of your life and time and will undoubtedly push you out of your comfort zone. But in the meantime, what does it look like for you to reflect reflect God's image when responding to those thousand little yeses? I'm talking about the myriad of situations you face on a daily basis. Because if you wait for the day when you respond with a big yes, you may look back and realize that, that you've done a rather poor job of responding to the thousand little yeses that you have the opportunity to choose every day. Let me give you an example. A couple of months back, a college friend, a couple of college friend of Krista found himself in a situation without a car. 
and having to rely on Uber rides to get back and forth between work, it was costing him so much that he was in many ways almost working to commune. Krista approached us asking if, we might be, if it might be possible to lend him our pickup truck uh, for the next couple of weeks until he found a replacement car. And this is where I need to make a confession. Holly was fully on board and hardly gave it a second thought. But I remember taking into account the risks and responsibilities he would would be taking on. Like what would happen if the the truck was was in an accident? What if some damage was incurred? And I was somewhat reluctant, but I did go along with him. and And we lent him the truck for about six weeks. However, I was confronted by my reluctance. I sort of wanted my rational nature to win, but it it wasn't long before I felt convicted by my lack of generosity. Then things got a little complicated right before he returned the truck to us, because the day before he returned it, he went to close the door, and when he did so, one of the panels in the back window broke. Something that I was afraid would happen actually happened, and now now who would take on the responsibility to repair the window? Uh, since it happened on his watch. However, here was a guy who was already struggling to make ends meet. How could we possibly ask him to pay for the window repair? It was just one, just one against the whole idea that we had given him the car with no strings attached. In any case, it's interesting this happened because, again, I had to come to terms with my ungenerous spirit. I'll admit that I, I struggle in this area, and in retrospect, I realize this is one of those thousand little yeses where I had the opportunity to respond with grace and an unwavering yes. And in, and in doing so, I'm sure I would have been, it would have been a much more pleasing response to God. Your choice to serve in humility matters. When you avoid giving in to entitlement, anger, impatience, or strife, this is what following Jesus looks like. Remember, sanctification is the continual walking out of our salvation. And our motivation should be because you know it's the right thing to do. Scene three really highlights this idea of of an extravagant devotion. What's the area in your life of great value which you're willing to give to God in response to his commitment to you? Perhaps there's something stirring inside of you, something you've been considering for a long time that you're ready to act upon. Maybe remember that pursuing God is, is a radical pursuit. To make a significant change or impact in the world takes an unwavering attitude filled with faith and hope. There are plenty of stories written about others like Mary who have made a lasting impact in the world. It often starts with a simple act of kindness or generosity. Perhaps today or very soon, stories will be written about your life. It may not take a lifelong sacrifice. It could be something that you do today, one of those thousand little yeses which makes an impact on somebody else's life. As God opens doors for each one of us, let's remember to live in this eternal moment and respond today. And here are my final thoughts. I was captivated by Mary of Bethany because of her direct contact with Jesus. Have you ever wondered what it would have been like? And by the grace of God, has, has she opened, and by the grace of God, as she opened her heart and mind, And in in these three encounters, responded to him out of pure fascination and belief. That's why she's become one of my heroes in scripture. And maybe, maybe she's become one of yours too. When Jesus came to the dinner party in scene one, Mary's awareness that Jesus was the the coming Messiah caused her to respond out of reverence and honor. 
for who he was, his majesty. Our approach to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords should always begin with this posture of the heart. Jesus was willing to die on the cross for us. Shouldn't we be humble enough to sit at his feet and listen? In scene two, we see Jesus come alongside Mary in her grief, a compassionate and tender moment. It may seem like a stretch to think that the God of the universe could actually humble himself to be there for you, but that's exactly what Jesus demonstrated when he took on the hum- on human form and dwelt among us. When you're in this situation, or, you're, or, you're, or maybe you're, when you're in a situation, or, or if you're in a situation now, freely cry out to him, for he is our great comforter and ever-present, time in, and ever-present help in time of need. I can testify that he's been there for me on many occasions, and he'll be there for you too. In their final encounter, Mary's response to Jesus was with extravagant devotion. She took the one thing she had in life that was of great value and freely gave it. How will you respond when you consider that not only have you been given a second chance in life, but you've also been generously gifted with the very Spirit of God, who in turn provides us the direction and the courage we need to make an impact in this world? Live in this eternal moment. It sounds pretty exciting, doesn't it? Go forth today and be a word of encouragement, maybe a word of wisdom for someone saying yes to those unexpected opportunities. The mission field begins as soon as we, as soon as we exit those doors. Let's be the beacon of light which shines in dark places and live up to the calling God has placed on all of our lives. Because if what happens here on earth is important to God, it should be important to us as well. He promises to love and sustain you. Let's respond to his affections and live our lives as a reflection of this understanding. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's, uh, let's close with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you always for the opportunity to gather in your name. And uh, we thank you for the word which uh, inspires us and compels us to move forward in, in our lives uh, following after you. Um, Lord, open up doors in our lives even today and, um, and help us to be your hands and feet and to shine the light in dark places. Uh, help us to be a word of hope and, and, um, and a word of truth um, to those who are in need. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.